Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Lord, on the sheet, the order of service, it says intimations and information, and that's quite deliberate, Lord, because this time in the middle of the service, Lord, is an opportunity for us to hear, to hear what's going on in the wider church, perhaps, to hear what's going on, yes, within our own fellowship, within our community, and we would be people who have ears to hear with thought to consider, to know how best we might pray. Lord, I thank you that there are folks here who use the intimation sheet as a prayer guide for during the week. Lord, we thank you for our young folk we hear through in the hall singing. We thank you for Park Kids and for its ministry. But we also thank you for the coffee service and for the Ladies' Association, and for the afternoon refresh group on a Wednesday, and their care and ministry for those who, well, let's say at the end, the opposite end of the age spectrum within the life of our fellowship. Lord, for those of us who are in the mean, in the middle, who are still perhaps working, who have got demanding jobs, who have got the pressure of, yes, bringing up a family, a great joy, but also a great responsibility, We thank you for even this time just to be still and to know that you are God. And so as we commend to you all that we have heard about things and happening and events and everything else, so we ask, O Holy Spirit, that you'll continue to give us ears to hear as you speak to us through your word, all for the glory and honor of Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And we're going to read the second of these letters found in this part of the book of Revelation. As I think I said last Sunday, we we have in this section of the book one sense, you can understand the whole book of Revelation as a letter. It is, in one sense, a letter, a letter from Jesus given through the Apostle John whilst he was in house arrest or prison. In, um, no, not house arrest, but in, in prison in the island of Patmos. And um, it's given to the church. And the picture of Jesus given right at the very beginning of the book of Revelation is this p- picture of Jesus standing, the glorious Jesus, the, the Jesus that was appeared to the disciples, the transfigured Jesus, the one who's dressed in a robe, down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest, whose hair and his head is white as snow. All of that, that picture of Jesus standing and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword and the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, and all of that understanding. That picture of Jesus, this is Jesus speaking to the church. 
And the first letter we saw last Sunday was to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was the main center of this part of Turkey, of Asia Minor, the main city, the main port, the, the way to the heart of the Roman Empire, the way to, the, to Rome itself, a major uh, a bastion of the Roman Empire in the eastern part of the Mediterranean. And we saw last Sunday the church in Ephesus is commended because it is orthodox, it has held to the faith, it doesn't tolerate, we're told, wicked people. It has tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. They have persevered under many hardships for his name and have not grown weary. In many ways, very, very, very commendable things that mark out a church. But interesting enough, Jesus lays this charge against them that they have forsaken their first love. And the things that were motivated by that love, their ministry and their care for, for each other and for indeed the wider community around about that. And the warning is that they are to repent. And now, verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. Smyrna, the ruins of that still can be seen today, was certainly not like Ephesus. It wasn't this massive cosmopolitan city. It didn't have a, a main highway, the way which ran down to a port. But yet, it was a nice place to live in. I'm going to quote some of the descriptions of people at the time speaking, or that era speaking about Smyrna. It was known as the flower of the empire, the crown of the cities of that region, the ornament of the country. It was the birthplace of Homer. So, probably, if it had been more modern times, it would have had a wee birth plaque, and you know, outside the house, and a wee kind of guided tour, and a walk around, and all the rest of it. It was a place of culture, and it was a place of reasonable wealth. We see that, or seemingly, the, the ruins testify to that because of some of the very, relatively small towns. See, so this is not like a Glasgow. Ephesus would be more like Glasgow. This is kind of like a Perth. And well, you see Perth, the big town hall that sits in the middle of Perth. I don't know what to do with it, do they? But they've got this big town hall. Well, in the middle of Smyrna was this big public hall. And many of these public buildings had been financed actually not by the Roman authorities, but by a number of very large and wealthy Jewish business people. Smyrna had become a base for Jewish entrepreneurs to find a welcome and an opportunity. And they had taken that welcome, they would taken that opportunity, they had done very well, and as a sign of ingratiating themselves to the Roman Empire, they had often given large gifts which allowed these very impressive public buildings to be set up. So it was actually quite a nice place to live. Culture, in many ways. But because of that, because it wasn't that big, the Christian population would have been quite noticeable. 
you can, in a sense, get lost in Glasgow, if you want. You can't really, well, I suppose you could get lost in Perth, but you would be, be found relatively easily. And, and, and for a number, for a group of people being different, while well, they might come to a large city and disappear into the hundreds of thousands of people that live in that city, in an area where there's a few tens of thousands, if that, then you would be noticeable. And that's the context of what we're reading about here today. Here is a church in a relatively affluent but quite Jewish-influenced city or town, and they are facing persecution. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. When people are going through difficult times, we often want to get alongside that person and say to that person, I know how you feel. The truth is, of course, if we say that, we don't actually know that. We don't actually have journeyed through, perhaps, for instance, uh, an illness or a period of unemployment or a bereavement or whatever. Then while our intentions are good intentions, actually, instead of helping, they're going to annoy, aren't they? There's nothing worse, actually, in some ways, than somebody patting you in the arm or the hand and saying, I know how you feel. And inside, you're thinking, no, you don't. <laughs> you just talk through a hole in your head. And, 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 and we mean well, but platitudes can actually cause even more problems when they're said. And yet, look at the one here who says, I know your afflictions. Look at how Jesus introduces himself. And in each of these letters, he introduces an aspect of his character. Yes, the one in Ephesus, he makes very clear, he's the Lord of the church. He holds the seven stars on his right hand and walks amongst the seven golden lampstands, a picture of the church. Jesus is the boss. He's the Lord. But here, Jesus introduces himself as the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, who died and came to life again. Here is our Jesus who's speaking, who himself is the one who encompasses, in a sense, the beginning and end of the totality of life's experiences. He was born as a child in Bethlehem. The incarnate word took flesh and lived among us, full of grace and truth. And he died and gloriously came to life again. Here is Jesus, the eternal word that took frail flesh and lived and loved and died and rose again. And he's the one who comes to the church and says, I know your afflictions. And it's important as we come together this morning to really grasp what this means. Here we're talking about a God who has entered in, a God who's taken frail flesh, a God who took upon himself all the challenges of that frailty. In physical terms. And a God who also came into a place where he was confronted with the darkness of evil and of death. I know your afflictions, Jesus says, because I've been there. I've got the T-shirt. Many years before Jesus himself, or this is the incarnate word, took flesh and lived among us, 
The psalmist had a grasping understanding of that knowledge that God had of him. Psalm 139, a psalm of David, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I sit on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Psalm 139. That fullness of knowledge that the psalmist knew God had of him. His life story his life's experiences from his conception in the mother's womb. And that's obviously an argument and raises very serious questions about, for instance, the whole issue of abortion and everything else. From the very beginning, from conception right to the very end, that's why Jesus says, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Our story, our life, not just of us personally, but of the life of the church, the life of God's people, the history of this world, are all encompassed by the one who holds all things together in his hands. And his hands are nail-pierced hands. The hands of the risen Christ that stood before the disciples still bore the marks of passion on his body. This is our God who knows our affliction. Those well-known verses in Isaiah 53 bring home to us that reality. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, 
and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so it goes on. And you know, my friends, that's radically different from all the other world faiths. So don't let anyone tell you that Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, or anything else. We're all just kind of getting to God and the, you know, and the kind of breadth of things. That is wrong. That is dangerous. That is unorthodox. And when sometimes people within the church, don't mean our church, within the church peddle these truths, they're heretics. It's not like that. Here is the uniqueness of Christianity. The one who is the first and the last but the one who died and also came to life again, and the one who knows our afflictions because he was afflicted for us. Let's sing together a hymn. It's a carol, actually, a Christmas carol, perhaps, um, but it's not Christmas, it's the middle of May. But we're going to hear the tune, and then we'll stand to sing together this, taken really from, drawn richly from God's Word. And the picture of Jesus, who was rich beyond all splendor, yet for love's sake became so. So this is the one who is the first and the last, and yet who knows their afflictions and their poverty. Interesting enough, the word that's used to describe poverty there, it's not just you know, a lack of the readies. It's actually a brokenness in body and in mind and spirit, a real poverty where people are broken, where they have nothing. That is the plight of the church in Smyrna. Nowadays, of course, we talk about the poor people, and there are people, poor people within our society. Many of those who would be classed as poor is because they don't have the readies. But this is a far deeper and more profound, profound poverty. And yet, look what Jesus says, I know your afflictions, your poverty, yet you are rich. If you want to turn just to Matthew's gospel and to what Jesus had to say about some of this and the Beatitudes that were given at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. Remember, this is the Jesus who's speaking to the church in Smyrna, speaking to the church in the world today, and this is the same Jesus who's speaking to the crowd gathered on the mountainside in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5 and verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here is Jesus' manifesto for the kingdom people. And I have to say to my own heart as much as to the heart of the church in the West and in this country, that's why so often we read that and we nod our heads and we say, oh, that's so true, but actually we don't really understand it. Because for most of us, anyway, we are not 
poor in the way that the church in Smyrna is poor, or the way that many believers and others in our world today are poor. We are not broken. We have all the accoutrements of wealth and security and possession round about us, things that are almost separate from our life of faith. And perhaps one of the reasons why the church in Britain today is so poor spiritually, why it resorts to all sorts of weird and wonderful things, either that way or this way, in order to shore up its decline or to draw people to its gatherings, including I've heard recently of a church in Northern Ireland where once a month, by this, we certainly get the folks in here, once a month under the seats there's a brown envelope, and inside that brown envelope is a set of car keys for a brand new car. Because the right buses, you know, the big bus company in Northern Ireland, well, he's a sponsor of this church, and so once a month there's a new car, and I think it's not just some sort of Hyundai thing, no disrespect to anybody who might have a Hyundai, uh, it's a, like a kind of wee, you know, the wee basic wee BMW, I always fancy one of these wee BMWs, I think I'll need to go to that church from my sabbatical, you know, and underneath the seat there's an envelope once a month. Blessed are the poor in spirit, well, not really, I mean, well, you might be poor in spirit, but don't worry, you'll get a new car for you next week. And we resort to all sorts of things to shore up because actually we've lost sight of what it is to be blessed in God's kingdom agenda. And God's kingdom agenda is so radically different from affluent Western middle-class Christianity. And it's that agenda that Jesus is speaking about when he says to the church in Smyrna, I know your afflictions and I know your poverty, but you're rich in the things of God. You're rich in your knowledge of God. You're rich in your experience of God. You're rich in your fellowship with God. You have a God-given mindset. You have a God-given way of being. That is rich. Not the riches of this world, which turn to rust, rot, and spoil, and cannot be taken with us when we enter into glory. You're rich because you're poor in heart. You're rich because you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're rich even when you mourn, for you will be comforted, and you know the reality of God's comfort when nothing else is there to comfort you. You're rich because in your poverty, in mind and body and spirit, you know the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, slum to be grasped, but humbled on himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. You know me, Jesus says, as I know you. And you're so rich. Is that how we would describe ourselves this morning? Rich. Because we know Jesus. Lord, you are so precious. You are so precious to me. And I love you. Yes, I love you. Because you first loved. And so here's a church that knows Jesus, the first and the last, the one who died and came to life, because they too are entering into a place of affliction. We're told that they are persecuted. It was obvious from what we read here that the Jewish people, as they had often done in the book of Acts, stirred up opposition to the church. 
and they had done so. And remember, we're talking here, Jewish people, some of the believers in that city would have been fellow Jews. It would have been a wife. It would have been perhaps a son. It might have been a daughter. And yet so filled with hatred. And of course, the connection is very clearly here is between what the Jews are doing, the, the human appearance of what the devil or Satan is doing. Because he goes on to speak about how the devil will put some of you to prison, to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. That the Jewish grouping together is a synagogue of Satan. Paul again in Ephesians, a battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this present age. There is a diabolical, deceiving work at hand. Now, in many ways, in our own society, we may be deceived by other things. Well, the rest of the global church, largely, certainly in Asia and in the Middle East, is facing persecution. The church in the West, outwardly so, doesn't appear to be. There are comments made, there are things in the media, all the rest of it. But we are here, that door standing wide open this morning. Nobody's going to come in and drag me out or drag you out or take a note of your name and address or anything else. No bulldozer's going to appear next week and knock down this building as they're doing at this very moment to churches in China. Some churches have stood there for a hundred years are being bulldozed down, even through the persecution of, of Chairman Mao in the 1960s, the Cultural Revolution. The buildings at least stood, they're being knocked down. We don't have that. But the schemes of the devil one, the diabolical deceiver, is far more subtle. Far more subtle. The lure of the flesh, of money, of status. The fear of losing face, the pressure to conform, all of that is at work doing the devil's job. The church in Smyrna was rich. And look as we close at what Jesus says to the church, even although they're going to face persecution, and whether the 10 days is a literal 10 days or a period of time, one sense is neither here nor there, the exhortation is to be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Can I read to you? I've read, I think, this once before. It always caught my attention when I began to read the story of the early church fathers, the martyrs of the church in the early years, and the Bishop of Smyrna from this very city testifying away later on, not when the letter was given, but in AD 162, um, was captured. He was actually discovered by a child, and he was brought before the guards and he was told to either repent and acknowledge Caesar as God, as Lord, or face consequences. And we're told the proconsul then urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release you, reproach Christ. And Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king? who hath saved me. At the stake to which he was only tied, but not nailed as usual, 
as he assured them he should stand immovable, the flames on their kindling their faggots encircled his body like an arch without touching him. And the executioner, and seeing this, was ordered to pierce him with a sword when so great a quantity of blood flowed out as extinguished the fire. But his body, at the instigation of the enemies of the gospel, especially the Jews, was ordered to be consumed in the pile. And the request of his friends, who wished to give it Christian burial, rejected. They nevertheless collected his bones, as much of his remains as possible, and caused them to be decently interred. Polycarp, the venerable Bishop of Smyrna at 86, who would not deny his Lord and his God. And you know, my friends, you know, as we Sunday by Sunday, or maybe not Sunday by Sunday, but very regularly put out things as I have done today on your intimation sheet information about our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a poster in the hall advertising a meeting at Mulgai United Free Church on Thursday the 6th of June where Kumar Swami is going to be speaking of the increasing persecution of the church in India. Do you know, my friends, if, if I wanted, I have to be honest, I didn't want to go to India to visit the church. I always had a vision of me going there, taking something with my guts and then dying, and then you all having to come out on a bus tour next year. And this wee white picket fence, you know, and a wee stone, here lies our beloved pastor, who died in the mission field. I had this vision. I was going to send Nathan. Um, but, but, yes, I thought, well, you'll maybe more. You'll maybe fight the good fight and survive. But, you know, we joke. I, we couldn't visit that church now. We couldn't visit that church now. You wouldn't be allowed to. They'd want to know why you're visiting the part of India that's certainly not on the tourist route. And when they found out why, you told them why, you'd be put back in the plane and sent home. That's what's happening today to believers in India and to the church in India. And yet, according to Jesus, they're rich. They're blessed. They're prospering in the things of God. And they have the promise, notice what it says, the one who's victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus, warning to the disciples and to the religious leaders, said these words, I'll read them to you from Matthew's gospel. You can read more when you go home in the back of the intimation sheet. There's a wee thought on all of this. And this is the words of Jesus from Matthew 10 and 28, where it would help if it was Matthew, no Mark, wouldn't it? Matthew 10 and 28, where Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's what Jesus is meaning here about the second death. He's not talking about physical death. We all die. We had a funeral service again this week for Pauline's grand as we'd had a fortnight before for our grandpa. Fine believers who have entered into glory. We're sorrowful, we feel the pain of loss, but we rejoice that for them to be with Christ is far better because they need not fear the second death, the judgment and eternity in hell. And that's the word of assurance given to the church in Smyrna. I am the first and the last, Jesus says. I died and came to life again. I have the keys of death and Hades in my hand. He says that in Chapter 1, and verse 18, I hold the keys of death and Hades in my hand. And to those who are victorious, 
there need not be any fear of the second death. That's what sustains our believers in Christ in the world today. That's why they're rich. And why in so many ways we are poor. Faithful one, so unchanging angels one, you're my rock of peace, Lord of all, I depend on you. We'll remain seated as we sing this through together and as our offering is brought. Just as we gather before the Lord in prayer, we come, O oh God, and even as we've sung those words, we've been challenged. We have to confess, O oh God, that we who think we are rich are actually in so many ways poor. We remember before you our brothers and sisters in Christ who have often so little of this world's goods, who are poverty-stricken in so many ways, and yet their lives shine forth with the grace and the power of God. And so we remember your suffering church and we remember, Lord Jesus, you told us that unless we were willing to take up our cross, to come and follow you, we would know little or nothing of your kingdom power. And so as we bring to you these our offerings, we bring our confession of our sin. We say sorry strip us of all those things that would hinder us from putting our hope and trust in you. Tear down those thrones that we build or have within our lives so that you, Lord Jesus Christ, might truly rule and reign as the first and as the last, the one who died and rose again the one who is Lord of all. And let's stand and sing through this song now as our closing act of worship, Faithful One. We'll stand to sing. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.